You're listening to Piece by Piece. I'm Jude Hill, and this is a space for us all to get curious together about those who are pushing on against all the odds to build peace. What sparks them? What keeps them going? What have they personally lost along the way? But what have they salvaged and discovered? What's working and not working when it comes to reconciliation? And are we ready yet to put words to some of our most difficult stories? In each episode, we get to hear from someone who is actively pursuing peace. We listen in as they share honestly about complex journeys. And we'll try to reflect piece by piece, story by story on how peace is really doing. Today's conversation is with Anne Walker. Anne is a peace facilitator linked to the Playhouse in Derry and part of their Theatre of Witness programme. It's a form of performance that gives voice to those whose stories are often not heard. And Anne herself has known the power of that. Anne grew up in the Bogside during the Troubles and was recruited by the IRA when she was still at school. In this conversation, she offers us a rarely heard perspective about what it was like to be a young woman in the IRA. She shares candidly about the qualms and questions that led her to exit when she was in her early 20s. For those listening who aren't as familiar with events during the Troubles, show notes are available to give context to some of the references in here. Also to flag up, Anne talks about a deep friendship with Kathleen Gillespie, whose husband Patsy was murdered by the IRA. And you can hear more of Kathleen's story in a podcast that's been released alongside this one. So this chat lasts for around 40 minutes. And just to warn you, there are difficult topics covered here, including sexual abuse. Thank you so much for choosing to listen in to Piece by Piece. Here is my conversation with Anne Walker. Well, after a wee bit of kerfuffle over a set of headphones, which she had to swipe from her son Asa to make this podcast possible. He wasn't using them there, was he? Not using them now. (laughs) (laughs) Apologise to Asa for nabbing his headphones there. Jude says sorry for nabbing your headphones. Thank you for talking to me. Um, First of all, how is your day? So far, so good. I've had an early morning and did a workshop last night, a really successful workshop. So, so far, a good start to the day. And we will get on, obviously, to talk lots about your work um, and just why you're so passionate about it. But just to start us off, tell us where feels most like home for you and what that feeling um, is like. Well, obviously, and I'm going to do the, the obvious family and I have a one son. He's be 21 this year. Sometimes when we take his girlfriend up to university, I get to spend that hour or so in the car with him. And those are great because he might drive a wee bit and we have great deeper conversations. Deep conversations always seem to happen in the car. But what feels the best is whenever I am doing the work that I do, which is theatre of witness, when I'm either doing workshops with some of the other participants or getting involved in anything that the Playhouse or Theatre of Witness has for me. It's where my passion is and where it feels right. I have a hunch that a lot of your answers are going to circle back to Theatre of Witness and (laughs) your passion for that, which is going to be a major theme. One of the themes and aims of this podcast is just trying to encourage people to put words to some of their most difficult stories and what they've 
salvaged from that along the way. So can you give us an insight um, about a story of loss or pain or challenge in your own life that really went on to shape you and the, the work you do at the moment? Right. So my mother's brother was killed in Bloody Sunday. When I said that on stage for Theatre of Witness, it took my life in the direction that I am now, where speaking my story is my work and my passion. But before that, my mother's brother was killed in Bloody Sunday. I was three years old. And at the time, we were stationed in Wales because my father was in the RAF, which wasn't unusual at the time because a lot of people would have left the North for work. Um, but when that happened, so my daddy had to resign from the RAF and we all came home and all of our futures changed. We were supposed to be stationed in Hong Kong. That was our next port. But we, my daddy resigns. We all come home to Derry, brought up in the heart of the Troubles and one of the worst years of the Troubles. We started off our lives in Derry, myself, my two-year-old sister, my mum and daddy. And that one terrible day, I'm sure it changed our futures. It changed a lot of futures that day, but that definitely shaped mm. what would bring me to the turning point that was Theatre of Witness. And what was childhood like for you then? And from that point and you into your, your teenage years, how did it define you? Um, apart from all the normal stuff, like hanging around with cousins and growing up with family and we, we, whenever you look back and people say did you have a happy childhood and I say god it was great correct no hanging around because it's and all the rest but when you think about it our normality was bombs bullets cs gas um house raids by police and soldiers many of them constantly getting stopped and searched and um stopped and questioned on this on the streets from an early age Going into town, we had to go through those metal turnstiles and you get searched going into town and coming out of town. Um, lived by the news. It was 8 o'clock morning news when you got up. Lunchtime news, 6 o'clock news and um, the 10 o'clock news at night. And I sort of believed that this was happening. What I was experiencing was the same for everybody right across the country. I didn't realise that there were pockets where it was worse and constant and I lived in one of those pockets. As I got older, the hunger stripes happened when I was 13. So I I would have, I remember those demonstrations. I remember the community coming together and supporting the hunger strikers and being out with the bun lids. And two of the hunger strikers came from Derry and I was at their funerals. I imagine that that time felt like what it must have felt like in the late 60s and early 70s when I was too young to remember when everybody seemed to pull together in the community and uh, but it was scary scary times as well because there were so many funerals and there was people that were being killed that you knew or people going to prison that you knew no kid boys that were just a couple of years older children were killed with plastic bullets going to those wakes it was terrifying but I can't deny that it wasn't exhilarating and adrenaline filled and when things weren't happening, you were waiting for something to happen. So you seem to be, I seem to be, and talking to other people as well, we all sort of left on our nerves. But I also grew up listening to the police and Blondie and David Bowie <laughs> and being very much an individual and doing my mommy's head in because I was always wearing funny clothes or <laughs> trying to steal her makeup and things that ordinary teenage girls do. 
And you mentioned house raids there. Can you describe to us as a as a child what your experiences of that um, were? Waking up and seeing soldiers and police in your bedroom, <laughs> being taken out of bed, um, watching them as they're going through your doll's house. Mummy um, being angry, my daddy being quiet, and us all sitting downstairs and hearing the noise of them breaking things and pulling things apart. Or hearing the door banging in when they first came. They wake and open your eyes and see a soldier standing over your bed with a gun. It was terrifying, but it also became the norm. Sleeping in bed with your clothes on instead of your pyjamas. Or mum and daddy coming to school and taking us on holiday over the border to Bonkrana. And thinking this was really great, not realising that things were that bad, that they just wanted to get out of there for a while. And how was your family processing all of that then, obviously, um, with the, the pain of, of loss of Bloody Sunday and then the highly politicised environment that you were growing up in? You know, what were some of the, the conversations that you were having with your parents or other family members? There was a lot of shouting at TV. <laughs> um, but I suppose what happened as well is my mummy and daddy both got involved in the Bloody Justice campaign from an early time. Though my da- and my daddy worked in DuPont. And he would have had great friends from all communities out there. And very rarely did he ever have any hassle or any trouble out there. So with my mum and daddy getting involved in the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign, there was always conversation about the injustice of what happened on Bloody Sunday. So there was a lot of stuff that I heard in and out of my mother's house, my mum and daddy's house, through justice campaigns and stuff like that. But I never seen justice for it um so I just had this feeling that anybody that fought for justice that it didn't work my granny was brilliant I would have stayed in my granny's house a lot and if my granny had a ruled Ireland everybody would have been okay <laughs> she was just so is everyone's granny she, like that I feel the everybody's same granny's like that, eh? <laughs> oh she was brilliant she was one of those women that st- totted and no fatty tea and toast the big fork and the toast and the open fire and threw holy water over you when you were going to bed and prayed for every one of us all the time, but was wise in her ways. And so watching people, seemed to watch a lot of people in pain mm. growing up. There was a lot of people in pain. Why then, Anne, talk us through your, your reasons for joining the IRA and how that came about. Uh, I suppose so much went on in those years when I was a teenager. Um, between the hunger strikes and demonstrations and shootings and funerals and politics and politicians. And I was just wandering along. But one, one day this fella approached me and he said something about joining IRA. And I was 18. I was still at school. And I thought he was asking me to help him join. But when he says, no, I'm asking you to join. And I sort of something hit me like, oh, my God, somebody has seen more in me than just marches and demonstrations. They they want me and it felt like it felt like they needed me. And at that time they were my heroes. All of the justice campaigns didn't seem to be working. Um I knew all my history, all the history of oppression and um the bad housing, civil rights, I knew it all and I'd read books about similar situations all across the world and it was very much for the oppressed people. So it it didn't take much for me at all to say yes. And what were you involved in within the IRA then? What did you, you do? 
But once I was sworn in, I was assigned to be a quartermaster, which would have been finding safe houses and um, moving weapons and stuff like that around. And in the middle of all that, I was still at school. I would eventually mm-hmm. do a year at university. Yeah. Moving weapons around was, was one of the big things. And give us an insight into your, your mind at that time and how you how you thought about that when you were preparing weapons or moving them. Were you thinking through the consequences of, of where those weapons would end up? You know, was there any sense of, of guilt or, um, yeah, just sort of really awareness of that? Uh, well, I was raised Catholic as well. Um, and I remember growing up a Catholic and you're supposed to turn the other cheek and forgive and but finding it really difficult whenever felt that my community was so oppressed and hard done by and the injustices of Bloody Sunday. And um, when I got involved, I felt empowered. I felt, right, now I can do some. Now I can be part of the justice of setting Ireland free. Think, I think I thought about it in a small bubble. Did I feel guilty? That played on me. It definitely played on me. But I also felt... Um, the need to play my part for my people. We can look at, at situations and go, well, they're the baddies and they're the goodies. And I grew up with Cagney and Lucy and Starsky and Hutch and I actually wanted to be in the police and fight the bad guys. But I never once believed that we were the bad guys because to me, we were being terrorised by the police, by the army, by the loyalists. So it depends on who you are and how you look at it. Now, at my stage of life, looking back, could have got myself killed. I don't know if I got anybody else killed. Mm. As a quartermaster, we were moving weapons around and the way it was set up was that if we got the weapons to an active service unit and something happened, it didn't necessarily mean that it was our stuff that went to them that created what happened because then there would have been a direct line back and there was too many informers. So we never knew what, if we passed anything on or moved anything or we never knew what was being used for. And I suppose that was um, like a wee safety net because you don't think then that you're actually really involved in something. You know you're part of a bigger picture, but I had never directly been involved in having to kill somebody. And how do you deal with that thought now then that you, you, you literally don't don't know? I hold my hands up, I don't know. I don't know. There's Whenever I... The last lines that I say on stage are... And when I look back as a quartermaster, then I was directly involved in the deaths of people in this bar. And I have to learn to forgive myself. You know what I mean? You have to come to, and it, but I tell you, they're all gangs, police, army, loyalists. If you have a state uniform on, does that mean you're that much different from somebody, from an organisation that's trying to protect its people? But if I say that out loud, then am I a terrorist lover? But I'm a freedom fighting lover. And you know what? These days I am none of that. We have to look at every organisation and work out what is systemically wrong within each organisation. And we can't, we literally can't fix them all. But we can plant seeds and we can rehumanise and we can talk and we can dialogue and we can approach problems in different ways. I'm also interested in those people who like me, really believed in something that they were doing, but ended up getting caught up in something and weren't aren't able to escape that narrative. So they can't say, right, I don't agree with this. 
I don't think this is the right way to go along because they're caught up in a narrative or caught up in a community where if they say something like that, then it's like a betrayal. I'm not doing this to betray anybody. This is my own story. This is the way I feel about things. And it's what I have learned in my nearly 53 years. And I understand also that there's so many people out there that are so stuck in this in that single narrative that they know, even though they want to step outside it, but can't because of circumstances and betrayal of community, betrayal of background, betrayal of their people, whoever their people are. I was at still at school. I'm terrified of the teachers, but at night I was gun running. Um, so within the organisation, one of the people who was over me took a notion on me and he would have... Um, set up meetings where it was just me and him and I had to learn to find ways to avoid him because if I didn't get to avoid him then he would be having his way with me and not giving me a choice in, in a sexual way um, without giving too much detail. So I was actually being sexually abused and harassed within the movement but who did he talk to about that? My peers because would they believe it or not? Um, can't tell my family or my people because it's what I'm doing is a secret from all of that. I can't go to the police. They're the enemy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was really, it was a, a horrific time. And did that all play into your exit then or how did how did it come about that you, you, you left? I started questioning conversations, but not out loud. Questioning conversations in my head. I questioned actions in my head, but not out loud. I questioned what was going on with him, but not out loud. One night they sent me out in an operation um, and it was to blow up eight soldiers and two policemen. And when I heard what they were looking for me to do, I remember thinking, oh my God. And that day I had a really, really bad headache and I knew I didn't want to do this, not because my head was sore, but because it meant that, right, as a quartermaster, now you They've put me in an active service operation and I'm going to be killing people. And it, it, it just, I couldn't. But again, I was, was never going to say no. I didn't say no. I didn't question it. Jordan's do it. And it's funny when you hear about soldiers, I was just following orders. Well, that, that was me. Um, but that night on that operation, I ended up getting really, really sick. So it transpired. I went home and transpired out of brain hemorrhage. I don't know why I made it home. And if I hadn't had the brain hemorrhage that night, an informer hadn't informed in this operation, it was one of the reasons that we as quartermasters were on that. So the, the army and the police knew that we were there. I am glad that they didn't come. I'm glad that it was informed on. I'm glad that I didn't end up pushing the button that would kill eight soldiers and two police because I wouldn't be the person I am now if that had happened. I don't know how I would have left with myself. If that bomb had went off that night, I probably would have died. Uh, and that, that would have been actually okay because I don't know if I could have lived with it. And it was after that that um, there, there was silent gratitude that it didn't happen. Silent gratitude for a brain hemorrhage, uh, which is pretty sore, but I managed to get through it okay. But it was Patsy Gillespie's death that just that was just... I remember when that happened, um, Kelly's husband was used as a, a human bomb. I remember my stomach hitting the ground and thinking, what are we doing? 
And when you look back on that night when when you could have taken those soldiers' lives, how do you reconcile that now in terms of what could have been? It didn't happen, right? Um, and the thought of, I know that I wouldn't be the person I am now if it had happened. Um, and I believe that the brain hemorrhage wasn't just a brain hemorrhage. I, like People laugh at me and think about that, but I do believe that it was divine intervention. And I will forever be grateful for that brain hemorrhage. I know it's it's it might be strange to hear that because not many people survive them. And around the time, there was a cluster of brain hemorrhages, people with brain hemorrhages, and not everybody survived or came out as well as I did. But I will be forever grateful because I believe that it helped in shaping the next part of my future, which was also... Um, uh, madness begetting madness because I would eventually go down the road of drugs and um, partying and raving and and then eventually with the harassment from British Army and soldiers, police that just went through the roof till I, went, I, till I just couldn't take it anymore and I applied to university in Limerick, went down there. Whenever you love a crazy life of adrenaline, it's very hard to be normal. So how did you go from all of that to then talking about this part of your life within the IRA that was, was totally secret to so many people around you? Uh, I came home from Limerick in 2001 with my one-year-old, thir- it was 13 months, 13-month-old son. Um, and everybody expected me to fall apart because I had my marriage broke up and here I was a single mother. But I very quickly got back on my feet. On the outside, everything looked like a oh, fair play to Anne. She's doing brilliant. Look at her raising her son on her own, taking him away day trips and climbing mountains. And But on the inside, once the door was closed at night and my son was in bed, I was drinking. And without realising that I was holding all these, these stories inside. Um, but during that time, I met an ex-prisoner. When I was out, I was actually selling business cards, I think, at the time. And he remembered me from visiting the jails and we had struck up a conversation. And then I talked to him a couple of times after that and he was telling me about his journey, path to peace, that he'd been a, a life prisoner, got out in the Good Friday Agreement. And he and I talked about Patsy's death. But he said when he heard the news, he was in a cell and around him he could hear the other prisoners going, yay, we got five soldiers, we got five soldiers. But in his cell... His stomach had hit the ground, the same type of feeling that I had had. What the hell are we doing? And he told himself that night that as soon as he got out of prison, he was going to go down a different path. So he was now on a path. He was going up and down the Glen Cree and he was dialoguing with other combatants and he was going off to Africa with ex-soldiers and I was listening to his story and going, well, I want that. That's amazing. I want that. And I was hearing this from, from somebody with the same background and I thought, my God, it's amazing. And within a year, I had lost a job, lost a house, lost a car, was in the worst place possible, ended up living in a one-bedroom flat attached to my mommy's house that didn't have um, washing facilities, the shower didn't work properly, and it didn't have cooking facilities, so I ended up unbelievably dependent on my parents. And that's really difficult when you're in your early 40s and you're you have a 10-year-old son and Everything is, it really is difficult. But it was at that time 
did an opening came in the second theater of witness production and this prisoner that i was talking about expressed me says i think you should go and talk to this american girl because he felt that my story would be great for he didn't know it all but he knew enough of it he felt that it would be great for her for what she was doing but he also thought it would be a great healing thing for me so when i talked to her and seen her previous work and had conversations with her through tears and snatters i just i felt as if that passion for some sort of justice a passion for for doing something was building and building and i really wanted to be a part of it initially she said that she didn't think i would be strong enough because i cried so much um and then secondly she said that kathleen gillespie the wife of the human bomb patsy gillespie would be involved in the production and if she wasn't comfortable working with me then i would be out and she would be kept in so it's sort of Initially up against it, but eventually Taya would say, okay, Anna, I want you in this. No, we'll work together and get you stronger and get you there. And what were some of those first groups like when you had to speak up and, and share your story for the first time in, in front of, of people in front of Kathleen? Even though we'd been prepared, right, today we're going to meet up and we're going to start sharing stories. I was terrified. I was mostly terrified that none of these women would want to be in the same room as me. But I was really terrified of being in the same room as Kathleen Gillespie. Whatever about everybody else, at least our experiences were, were broad. But Kathleen Gillespie's husband had been killed by the organisation that I was involved with at the time. I was terrified to meet her. Sort of, no, like throwing up terrified, sick. Because we were all nervous, we were all shaken, we were all wondering who each other was. Um, until eventually then, it was sort of like a breaking of bread. No, we weren't thrown in and go, right, she's here, when you tell your story. And then Taya asked me to say my story first, and the tears just started. I was completely conscious of Kathleen being there. Um, and I just told what I could of my story. It was very emotional. The room, everybody, I think, was crying. And... When I finished telling what I could tell of my story, I turned to Kathleen and the thought that I had in my head was right. Whenever she has to say, whatever she has to do, I'm just going to take it. And what she did next, I just, I just, I'll never forget it. But she threw her arms around me and she gave me a big hug. And she said, all right, it's going to be okay. And it wasn't, it's okay that Patsy was killed. It wasn't, it's an, oh, I'm okay with it. It was just a moment of grace and a moment of, don't worry, we'll be able to work together. Um, and she thanked me for being honest. And Shaxi, what does she call me? A harmless wee critter. <laughs> and what did that moment do for you, Anne? It was just a, the, an incredible moment of grace that I think not just for me, but it set us all up for moving forward together. I still can't believe that, you know, and she's one of my best friends. She's the best crack. I really enjoy her. And she bikes me <laughs> up all the time to everybody, defends me and looks out for me. And and 11 years later, we're, we're as close as sisters. And how has that work developed then? Because it's it's gone on to shape your life. Where did it go from that point then? So we did about 14, 15 per live performances all over the north and one in Donegal. Um, Kathleen and Catherine from the Shankilde actually really worried about me every time I went on stage because I was going on stage and sort of announcing I'm um, building up to that part of the story and then saying 
I joined the IRA and they were really worried for me and concerned where the policewoman's part was shown on a screen on stage for her safety, for the safety of the audience and for the safety of us. But that was an incredible time. Emotional, every one of the audiences was different. And we knew that after it ended, we were all going to feel deflated. But we also knew that there was some funding set in place for us to do like some school visits and community visits. And we couldn't wait for that to happen. And when that started happening, but there wasn't a, a lot of it. It was like, well, we need more of this to happen. This is because the feedback that we had got from the production was so incredible. More people wanted to see it, but there wasn't more productions. And that's where we ended up getting involved with other organizations who came looking for us because we'd been involved in this or involved with the likes of Pop and with the Warrington Peace Centre came, uh, invited me to Warrington to dialogue and storytell and um, asked me to become a facilitator there. And I would start bringing groups of people back and forward. So there was different dynamics going out to different workshops. So you might have had me and Kathleen Gillespie, ex-IRA and victim and survivor of the IRA. But in another workshop, it could have been ex-IRA and ex-UDA combatants working together. And we started to see the power of the, the workshops and the truth. So we all ended up pushing and pushing the playhouse and pushing theatre witness, right? Okay, we need to do more of this. This, we, this needs to get bigger. And then they looked at it and seen how it was working and they would have applied for more funding. And it just started building over the years. Um, we're now, and we also pushed for it to get into an, a younger age group in schools, right down to 13, 14 year olds. Not to tell people what they should or shouldn't do, but to plant those seeds and show what's possible from impossibilities. Mm. Um, then these Americans came over and did a bit of filming with the ex-UDA man who invited me along as an ex-IRA person. And they got so interested that they decided to come back and we organised a large, diverse group of people for them to film because what they do is they take stories and narratives but they create accredited education programs that go into refugee camps and they wanted to create something for a political thought program and that's that's what they based it on but on the back of that they brought me and an ex-British soldier out to Wheeling, Virginia and we worked with academics for a week building a political thought program that at that time in 2015 went into 16 refugee camps around the world Afghanistan, Sudan, Burma and that was pretty incredible because I remember sitting amongst all those academics thinking, what am I doing here? Why would they want to listen to me? Your story has literally taken you all over the world. And I'm wondering, does it get less terrifying to share it? Like, is there still for you a fear of people's reactions to it or a fear of arrest even? Like, is that still something that plays in your mind? I've always looked over my shoulder about the arrest thing. Initially, when I did Theatre of Witness, it was one of the things that says, right, if I do this, is there a possibility that I can get arrested? And actually saying this out loud on a podcast could also, the, the wrong people may pick up on it. But but I, I always said that I would never, I tell the truth now and I have to stand on the truth. So, and it was one of those questions that I feared most out in the community. But I remember 
one day going to a workshop in a very loyalist area just outside Belfast and I was there in place of the policewoman who couldn't pick it that day and it turned to the counsellor who was with us at the time and I said do these people realise that I'm here in place of the policewoman um, and we had talked about what is the question that you're most afraid to answer and mine was what if somebody asked me did I ever do time and as always happens when you challenge the universe the workshop went really well that day, but the questions, when the questions started coming, one of the women from the loyalist side of the community, and it was a mixed community, it brought um, another group over from the Catholic side. She says, have you ever done time? And I took a deep breath. says, right, okay. No, I haven't. Says, I've never been charged. I've been arrested. I've been taken to Castlereagh, right, but I've never been charged with anything. I've never done time. And I waited for the response. And what she said was, you mean to tell me you risk doing jail by coming and doing these works. Well, fair play to you. And I was like, oh my God, what was I afraid of? This woman was, and it's so fair play to her because she could have said, right, get yourself in jail for five years. Um, and what about your family, Anne? And, and the truth, was that a difficult step? It was unbelievably difficult uh, because I remember coming home and telling them that I was getting involved in a stage production and they were like, well, this is really great. Um, and then I had to sit them down and say, that I would be talking about my life and part of my life story was that I had been in the IRA and that was a complete shock to them and they were absolutely devastated and they didn't want me to do this. Obviously they were afraid and angry and devastated and mortified and how could our Anne have been? Because the, the image that people have of me is confident and nice and sweet and they just couldn't picture it, couldn't imagine it and it was really difficult. Because they didn't want me to do it, then I had to sit down and make that decision. Do I do this for me or do I not do it for them? And there was people in the background who'd seen the first production and thought it was brilliant, but was like, don't be too late in her on stage, especially if nobody has ever known it's never done time. People worried that I would end up getting arrested and people worried that, that I would be targeted. But I don't regret it at all. Because even though it was difficult for my parents and they didn't come to any of the productions and they didn't support me during the process, they didn't want to know, right? Um, but three years after the stage production, the documentary of the production done by Margot Harkin called The Far Side of Revenge came on BBC. So I phoned my mommy and said, right, don't be channel surfing tonight because that thing I did on stage, the documentary about it is on tonight, thinking that if she didn't go to production, but I tell you, me, my mommy didn't fall out. She was angry at me. She didn't want to know, but... The next day I went down to her house and I was sitting on the sofa and she was in her armchair and she folded her arms and she said, I watched that last night, you know. And I had to flip. I sort of braced myself because in the documentary it showed me being filmed in her kitchen and she didn't know that I'd done any filming in her kitchen. So apart from the documentary, I was going to get caught having filmed in her house without her knowing. But so I sort of braced myself and waited for it. He says, okay, what did you think? And the next words out of my mommy's mouth were, I didn't protect you. And I that floored me. And I remember that feeling of wit coming off my shoulders. And that one thing that she could have said, are you stupid? What are you thinking? All the things that I expected her to say. And there she was just being vulnerable mother who took responsibility like there's nothing just mommy what could you have done and we had a conversation 
And now my parents are my biggest supporters and so proud of every workshop, every conversation. They've even had their own conversations with people that they would never have thought they'd have had conversations before with. And so for the past seven, eight years, my relationship with my parents has just got stronger and stronger. How would you sum up, Anne, what the whole process um, of telling your story like this has given you and added to your life? Purpose, empowerment, um, focus, peace. There's a feeling of what I did before. I wanted to be on the right path, but it wasn't the right path for me. This feels like the right path and it feels like what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's the words, it's, I feel like I'm loving. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is a hunky-dory okay. There's still difficult times. I spent nearly a year, um, not a full year, but I spent a good lot of time attending a food bank recently because these workshops are self-employed. It depends on the workshops, whether you get paid or not, so a universal credit. But because I was in the food bank and because of the experience I've had with theatre of fitness, I didn't hide that. I didn't treat it as a stigma or taboo. I said to people, I'm just heading to the food bank. And people are going, you at the food bank? Do you know the way people have, we assume and we have impressions or assumptions of people? I said, I am really struggling here. So I need to go to the food bank for, for support. You'd find that people are going, do you know, I know somebody that needs to be going to the food bank or I, what can you do to help her? And instead of just being involved in conflict resolution, you end up being open about all those other aspects of your life. Skills and methodology is transferable right across the board. It's about not allowing things to be taboo so we can speak openly. And if we're able to speak openly, then then more um, more healing happens. And I really believe that. I'm interested then when you say it's transferable, do you think that's the case in terms of big picture legacy? Because obviously we're stuck in so many ways. Um, like what role do you feel that storytelling can play in the, in the next phase of, of where we need to get to in terms of owning the truth and, and speaking the truth out? I think a lot of us are stuck in our own single stories and our own single narratives. Um, and true narrative, it, what it does is it takes away the mask and shows you the human. And I think that not just here, but everywhere, it's not what you know, it's what you don't. And if we knew more of the truth behind organisations, be it police, be it army, be it paramilitaries, be it communities, be it... If we, if we knew more about the truth behind people um, and the masks and the faces that we put on, that politicians put on for their constituents or we put on because we're afraid to betray everybody else. If we, if we knew more of the human, there would be definitely more pathways to, mm. to better communities, more understanding for healing. And I think that storytelling done the right way in the safe place uh, with great support which is which is so important alongside all of this builds trust builds understanding and builds better communities empowers people within their own areas within their families first and within their communities and I really believe that there's I might be an ex-combatant with I have had been afforded an incredible opportunity for my life to be turned around but I believe that there's many more in every circumstance out there 
that have probably probably sitting with things in their head but can't step outside the narrative that they're in. There's the fear. Fear holds mm. everybody back. So you know? how would how would government help facilitate people then being able to to step out of that and shed some of the secrets? I think when they hear about this work and they go, okay, that's brilliant. Let's fund it. It's brilliant. But I get them all the theatre of witness workshops. It'll change a lot of minds. Um, I, I really do think that this work across because it's not just my story there's many stories there's other ex-combatants ex-police ex-soldiers victims and survivors transgenerational stories and through the playhouse there's a further um, peace academy that is exploring um, transgender lbgtq stories frontline stories those stories that those people that we really take for granted yeah get them to workshops Jude. let's get them to workshops <laughs> sort them out <laughs> We started off by you chatting about your sense of home and, and just how that felt for you. But when you cast your eye to what your vision for the work you're doing and what sort of home or society you want to build for others, like, can you sum up for us just, just what that is? Uh, um, do you know what? What we all want is equality. What we all, what we all need is equality. Um, and change the, the way we look at each other. John Lennon got it right when he says no religion. Oh, what is what else did he say? No, oh, yeah, I should be able to quote this better. You're gonna st- you're gonna break out uh, into karaoke here, I feel. I don't think no, he he got it right when he said that. If there's no religion, we break it all down and look at the like. If you cut us all, we bleed to see. Mm-hmm. We laugh at jokes. We cry when we're sad or happy. We do. We mostly are so unbelievably similar, and yet unique in in all our own ways. And we try and understand people the ways and the where's and let things fall into place. And thank you so much for sharing with me and just your honesty, vulnerability and how you lead out of your own story and your own truth and all of the work you're doing in terms of holding space for other people now to have those conversations as well. So I really appreciate you sharing all that with Thanks us. Thanks for listening, Jade. So thank you again to Anne for being willing to be vulnerable with us. Obviously that takes courage. As part of each podcast, I take a bit of space at the end after the chat to just reflect and to help me do that, I'm putting words together each time in the form of a poem. So here's Anne's. All of your futures, you say, turned on that day, bloody Sunday a seismic date in our shared history, but within the walls of family homes and lives, beyond the pain of loss of love, destinies were altered then. Your family's plans torn up, Asia bound no longer. Instead, it was home to Derry. You needed community, you didn't need the trouble. Funerals, house raids, riots, stop and searches, non-childlike scenes interspersed of course with normality, tea and toast at your grannies, as well as David Bowie, left of field fashion and boys. You ended up playing this dual life out to extreme, schoolgirl by day, gunrunner by night. You craved justice you say, you risked deaths, but ultimately life won for you. Qualms and questions arose, your health and freedom at stake. You found your way out, then words found you, and so did a stage. You owned your story at a cost, sharing cigarettes and moments with those whose stories juxtaposed with yours. 
Now you crave peace with your son, your dog and your cat. But much more than that, you long for the truth to set many more free. Free from blind loyalty, narrow narratives and fear. Because you know embracing the hard truth can make words and lives run free. This podcast has been made possible through funding by the Social Change Initiative and our gorgeous soundtrack was composed and performed by the brilliant local artist, Fierna. Last word to you, just to say thanks for listening to Peace by Peace. Hopefully it sparks some new conversations. I'll chat to you soon. Bye.